Today's Bible reading, uh, we've got two readings. The first is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 26 to 30. And the second Bible reading is from the next book, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 20 to 23, and 35 to 49. Romans, chapter 8. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helped us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. First Corinthians chapter 15, First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Oops. Sorry. Uh, verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, that is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, 
it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Father in heaven, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this time to look at your word, uh, to consider uh, this uh, final topic, this final doctrine, as we've been considering what it means to be united to you. Father, we pray that you bless us. Help us by your spirit uh, to grapple with all that we're going to hear, to be challenged and encouraged. Help us, Father, as well, um, to hear your word carefully uh, and to keep responding to it with obedience and love. I pray, Father, for myself, that you'd help me to speak clearly on this topic, this wondrous and glorious topic, as I ought. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come now to the end of our sermon series. Over the past five weeks, we've learned what union with Christ is. In the first week, uh, we started wrapping our heads around the main topic of what union with Christ is. Uh, ben then took us to the birth of Jesus. And we saw how Jesus coming to earth, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, helps us understand how union with God is possible. And we saw how being united to Jesus means that his righteousness is ours, and so that we are justified in God's sight. And we saw how because Jesus is perfect and holy, we too are seen by God as perfect and holy, and that motivates our holiness. And then last week we were challenged to remember that union is not just an individual thing, but a corporate thing. We together, male and female, black and white, poor and rich, are united together in Christ. And that profoundly shapes and reshapes the way we church together. So how do these elements now work together? See, over the past few weeks we've tried to be clear that these ideas don't flow from one to the next. Uh, see, some of us might have this idea of the Christian faith uh, like this. First, we start with Jesus, his death and resurrection. Uh, and then we have faith in Jesus, which means that we're justified. Our justification leads to being sanctified. Then we grow in our love and unity together as a church. We keep persevering in faith, trusting what Jesus has done for us until we reach glory. Now, this is actually a very common way of thinking it through. But it does raise some questions. Can you be justified and not sanctified? If being justified and sanctified are crucial, can you be justified and sanctified and choose not to be united to a church? Let's turn to Romans now and see how Paul would answer those questions. Uh, Romans is the towering letter of the New Testament, laying out the sin problem of humanity and God's solution in Jesus. Now in Romans 8, Romans 8 is the towering chapter in this towering letter. And in this chapter, Paul has one overarching purpose, to flood 
believers with confidence in their faith, to saturate them and leave them soaking wet with assurance. A few weeks ago, we touched on Romans chapter 8, verse 1, uh, that for those in Christ, those who are united to him in faith, there is no condemnation. That the crushing weight of our sin and guilt and shame is no more. Jesus took the judgment in our place. He ra- he's raised back to life in proof that God was satisfied with his sacrifice and that death and judgment no longer had power over Jesus. We are united to this victorious Jesus. And so in the same way that he stands before his Father, holy and righteous, so do we. Nothing can change this. Not even suffering in this life. So from verse 18 onwards, Paul tackles how our glorious union with Christ helps us overcome suffering. Basically, for those who are united to Jesus, suffering in this life is not worth comparing to the future glory that is to come. And because there's no comparison, we can presently in our suffering have hope and wait patiently for that future glory to come. Now, We come to our verses in verses 28 to 30, and in this part of the argument, Paul says some very wonderfully comforting words. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. I have a look, see it it there. God works all things together for good. Now, we've got to be careful with this. There are many passages in Scripture which are often used and applied out of context, and this is one of them. Paul is not making a general statement here in verse 28. It is not a passage that applies equally to all people, no matter what faith they have. These verses apply to Christians. You see it again at the end of verse 28. God works all things for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those who are called, that's another way of saying those who are saved in Jesus. For those who are united to Jesus, that verse is an incredible comfort. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign power and will. Nothing takes God by surprise. God just simply cannot ever say, oops. The phrase, I didn't see that coming, is just not in his vocabulary. No, everything, even the bad stuff that happens in the life of a Christian, is being used by God for their ultimate good. Now, why can Paul say this? He knows the big picture. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the big picture. Start at verse 29. To be foreknown is to be personally known in advance by God. God already knew his people. And from here, Paul lays down this golden chain. If you are foreknown by God... You are predestined. You are chosen before the foundations of the earth to be saved. And if you are predestined, then you will be called. There are no ifs, no buts, no one predestined who will not fail to hear the gospel and respond. And if you are called, then you are justified. And if you are justified, then you will ultimately be glorified. Now notice again in verses 29 and 30 there, 
this is not a chronological order of things, of events. Paul is not saying that one leads on to the next. He's presenting a chain, sometimes called a golden chain, with all these links that work together at the same time. Now, here's Paul's point. If God has set his eyes on you, if he has set his sights on you, then your predestining, your calling, your justification and glorification are certain. Now, I think we get the idea of God calling and justifying those who are predestined, but also glorifying. Isn't it up to us to persevere so that we will get to glory one day? Well, that's the point that Paul is making for us today. God is the one who guarantees our calling so that we will be glorified. God is the one who preserves us in the faith so that we will receive what God intends, future glory. See, once we have been joined to Jesus, then we are preserved in Jesus. He continues to hold us close to him, and he promises to never let us go. If you are joined to Jesus, you will never be separated from him. You will be preserved by God in Jesus, and because of that, you will persevere in your faith. And God also preserves us so that to, us, to enjoy the blessings of salvation in Jesus. Like that previous flowchart showed that it was on us to persevere in our faith. But if, that's a, if it's a flowchart like that, one leading on to the next, then the moment we fail to persevere, then like dominoes, everything falls over. But for that to happen would mean that Jesus' death is in vain. He died to save, but those who are saved cannot remain saved. Friends, if you are committed to the idea of free will, you've got a theological problem to wrestle with. Because your salvation will only ever be as certain as the strength of your grip on Jesus. But what Paul says here in Romans 8 is so much more comforting and reassuring. Your final salvation, your future glory is not in your hands alone. It's not even 50% in your hands. And dare I say it, it's not even 1% in your hands. So here's an alternative flowchart. It begins, I think, and I think this best represents what we've been trying to look at over the past few weeks. We begin with being united in Jesus. From our union with Christ flows our justification. From our union with Christ flows our sanctification. From our union with Christ flows our unity as a church. So in answer to a previous question, can you be justified and not sanctified? You can answer it with a question of your own. Can you be united with Christ and not united with Christ? No. Now go back to, back, back to the chart. What keeps us justified and sanctified and unified is that God preserves us in these things. And that preservation also flows from our union with Christ. We are preserved in these areas so that we will reach the glory that God intends for us to reach. If he has foreknown us, then he has predestined us, 
called us to faith, justified us in Christ, set us apart from, for him and for good works, brought us together into a church family to love and care and to serve each other and preserved us in these things so that we will reach glory together. So let's tease out what this means. First, how are we preserved? We have to move away from Romans for a moment and over to Ephesians 4 uh, to get that answer. In what hopefully will be a very familiar passage, Paul tells us the means by which we are preserved in faith. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See what God gives to his body there in verse 11? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, all of them there to teach the Bible. In verse 12, this teaching equips the saints for the work of ministry. So after being taught the Bible, Christians take what we have learned to minister to each other. And in so doing, we build the body of Christ. We encourage and build each other up. We grow together. We mature. We root ourselves deeply in the gospel until verse 15. We grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You see that language of union with Christ in verse 15? We mature and grow up in Jesus. And how does that happen? It happens through what some theologians call the ordinary means listening to God's Word as we read it, as we hear it being preached, praying together for each other, and as we love and as we serve each other. God preserves us in these things, in the things that we are already doing, because those are the things that will help us grow and help us persevere. Bible reading, listening to preaching, praying and loving each other. I love, I love that these are called ordinary means. They're so simple. There's no secret type of prayer that you need to pray. There's no hidden knowledge that you level up to. There's no extra spiritual experience that we need outside of the Bible. It's the ordinary means that God uses to preserve and sustain us in union with Jesus. Which means that being preserved in Christ looks really simple. It just looks like growing in our faith, in our obedience, and in love bit by bit. It looks like setting our eyes on Jesus as we live and seeking to follow him obediently. <clears throat> and this is a group project. Number two implication. We're in this together. 
See, flowing out of the same Ephesians passage is that the work of preservation is a work that we all participate in together. God is the main one at work preserving us, but the part that we actively play is a part that we do together. When you're feeling tired, when you're feeling spiritually weak and weary, probably one of the worst things you can do is skip church and fellowship. It's been one of the themes that I've noticed recently in in a whole bunch of these uh, Christians, these big public Christians who have fallen away publicly. One of the first steps away from the faith was to leave the church. I understand that it's not always possible to be present at every gathering, but to cut yourself off from God's people is to cut yourself off from your source of growth and nourishment. When you're feeling this down and tired, and the best thing you can be doing is to come together with God's people and let them know that you are weary and tired. Let them know that you are weary and tired and let them minister to you. That that ministry of loving and caring for each other is what gets us through. It helps us persevere in our faith. So first, we are preserved in our union by ordinary means. And second, these ordinary means are available in the church. And so we must remain united to the church. Number three, and let's be clear, our preservation in the faith doesn't mean we will never sin again or that as you, even as you progress in the Christian life that you'll sin less. That we are preserved means that God will never forsake those who are united to Jesus. I used to, I used to think that um, as we got older in our faith, we would sin less. But now that as I've, I've gotten older in my faith, I've realized the exact opposite is true. Not that you become freer to sin as much as you want, but that as you grow in your holiness, it becomes more and more apparent how much you sin. I thought I was a loving and patient person until I had kids. And then I thought I was getting better at it. And then I could see pride creeping into my heart. And then I would lose it with my kids or I'd grumble in my heart and on and on and on. I turned 38, I turned 38 this year, which means that I've got, God willing, another 30 plus years of learning how truly sinful I am. And at the same time learning how glorious Jesus and his forgiveness of me is. Thank God that my being preserved is not dependent on sinning less and less in life. But, and, and, you know, really important joinder, number four, being preserved by God leads to perseverance. Being joined to Jesus means not just being joined to his work, but his life. I don't just get the benefit of having my sins and forgiven and eternal life, but I get the biggest benefit of being in personal relationship with God. And that pushes me to persevere, to put in effort to grow in my Christian work. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I see the two connected points there at the end of verses 12 and the start of verse 13. Work out your salvation, which doesn't mean, you know, mathematically work it out in your head. It means put in the effort to persevere in your faith. Why? Verse 13. It's God who's working in you to do that. Holiness requires the HS and the HW. It requires the Holy Spirit and the hard work. To quote Don Carson, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. Now, let me spend a bit more time on this point because it's one thing to say you can't cruise towards holiness, right? Some people need to hear that. I think there are some people here who need a gentle kick up the bum so you can get your, you know, get into gear and get moving. But it's one thing to say you can't cruise and it's another thing to tell Asian people to work hard. Asians are generally very good at working hard. It's in our culture, it's most likely in our DNA, right? Asians have black hair genes, brown eye genes, and working hard genes. And so tell an Asian person to work hard, and they're going to roll up their sleeves and get to work. But if we're not careful, if we're not very careful, that way of thinking, that culture is so subtle that it can strongly direct the way you think about your faith. Jesus died for us, then we have to do the rest to earn our salvation, to merit keeping it, or it's up to us to remain saved. Now, how do you know if you're caught up in this? One way to tell if you're doing this is if you're doing well. Let's say you're reading your Bible every day, you're praying every night, you're serving others, and you've got them looking up at you. Or if you're doing well, and you get the encouragements and the pats on the back, then it begins to go to your head. There's a pride that grows from this. But then you flip the switch, and then you start to struggle. And you get caught up in regular sin. And you're stumbling, and you're not reading your Bible as much, you're, not, you're neglecting your prayers. And then you feel like rubbish, as though you're the worst sinner in the world. You kind of flip from this feeling really great to feeling really rubbish. And if you struggle with a sense of pride in your spiritual achievements, or if you feel like you're the worst sinner in your struggles, then you might be caught up in thinking that your salvation has everything to do with your works. But the doctrine of preservation blows that out of the water. Yes, effort is required, but what keeps you is not that you have been faithful to Jesus, but that Jesus is being faithful to his own word to keep you. We are not saved because we persevere in our faith. 
We persevere in our faith because we are preserved by God's grace in our union with Christ. We persevere because we are preserved. And we are preserved not because our grip on Jesus is so strong, but because his grip on us is unbreakable. In the late 1800s, I've got to look that up again, uh, there was a high wire kind of acrobat by the name of Charles Blondin. What a great name. One of his greatest party tricks was to basically tie a massive rope across Niagara Falls and walk across on tightrope. And he'd do like stupid things, like, you know, do it on a, on, on a unicycle. Uh, one time he took a stove halfway across the, the rope. He cooked himself an omelet and then he ate it and then he brought the stove off over to the other side. And his one great trick was to bring a wheelbarrow across with a potato sack in there. And as he got to the end, everyone was cheering him on. And then he turned to the crowd, and as he got off, everyone clapped and applauded. And as he turned to the crowd, he, he asked the crowd, do you believe that I can put, that I can have one of you sitting in this wheelbarrow and I can walk you across? And everyone said, yes. And he turned to them and said, okay, who's gonna get in? And then no one did. But imagine for a moment that you're actually in the wheelbarrow. Right? And then you're, you're, you're halfway across the rope. What is it that's going to get you to the other end? It's not that you're gripping the wheelbarrow really hard, although you probably should. <laughs> it's that the master tightrope walker has you in his hand. John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's Jesus' grip on us that is unbreakable. Uh, so to summarize before we move on to point two on the outline. First, we are preserved in our union by ordinary means. Right? Bible reading, listening to preaching, prayer together. Second, these ordinary means are available in the church, so we've got to remain united to the church. Three, being preserved in union with Christ doesn't mean we stop sinning, because four, being preserved in Christ means we persevere with grace-fueled effort, trusting Jesus' grip on us more than our grip on Him. So, we are preserved by God, kept safe and persevere in trusting Jesus, but to what end? What, what's the end goal of all of this? Uh, when we sit an exam, we know that there's an exam result that comes at the end. When we run a marathon, I don't know why you would, but when you run a marathon, you know there's a finish line at the end. But when it comes to the Christian faith, what's at the end? Our souls float up to heaven, will be with God, Rory Shiner, in his excellent little book, One Forever, which deals with this topic of union with Christ, which we'll have on sale at the church camp. So if you have been listening to this series and you haven't quite got it, read that book. It's really good. He says that as a rule, we're much sharper on what being united to Jesus in his death means than we are on what being united to him in his resurrection means, which actually makes sense. There are heaps of metaphors and pictures of Jesus' death, like a sacrifice in the temple, a price paid to release a slave, a ransom paid, or an exchange in a marketplace. Our minds can grab onto these pictures and understand them. 
But what does it mean to be resurrected and glorified? We're not familiar with that. In 1 Corinthians 15, however, Paul gives us a number of pictures for us to grasp, to help us to see what it means to be united to Jesus in his resurrection and a number of pictures of our future glory. So first in verse, chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So here's the first image that Paul gives. He gives an orchard. Right, our future resurrection looks like an orchard in season. Now in the first centuries, the first fruits of a harvest were usually given to God as an offering because they were considered the best. The first fruits were usually the way that you judged the coming harvest. So if your first fruits were good, then the harvest to come was likely to be very good. Now back here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Jesus' resurrection is the best. And anyone united to Jesus who will, who will, be, res will be resurrected in the future, who will follow will follow in this resurrection. Right? What God has done in raising up Jesus, he will do in us as well. When you see the risen Jesus, you see your future. The second picture that Paul gives for our future is in chapter 15, verses 35 to 37. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. And the next picture that Paul gives us of what the future is like is of a seed and a plant. The difference between our present physical bodies and our future bodies will be like the difference between a seed and the plant. Now, I'm guessing that most people here, aside from maybe Uncle Stephen, where is Uncle Stephen? He's not here today. If you go to Uncle Stephen's house, he's got a lovely, beautiful garden. I'm guessing most of us here probably aren't gardeners. I don't have a green thumb. I have a red thumb because I kill plants. I recently killed an indoor plant that was on my desk. I don't know how I neglected it because it's like right there in front of me every day, but it died in my presence. So we're not really good at that, but, and this is not a paid sponsorship, Supermarket Woolworths has come to our rescue. <laughs> They've recently released these seed pots with their own little soils, and my kids, they don't know much about plants, and the seeds come in this very wafer-thin piece of paper that you can barely hold in your hands, and you hold it up into the light, and you can actually see the seeds on the inside. Now, my kids have no idea that these little tiny seeds will one day turn into carrots and cabbage and parsley and the king of all herbs, coriander. <laughs> if you don't like coriander, there's something wrong with you. But I digress. You need to repent. Um, our present bodies compared to our future bodies is like that comparison between a tiny little seed and the plant. When a seed becomes a plant, it becomes what it was meant to be, the end goal. So with our future glorified bodies, what we have now in this <clears throat> slightly overweight body, with all its aches and pains, is just a seed. The future is glorious. 
And it will happen because we are united to Jesus and He is glorious. See, God is not in the business of dusting off an old product and presenting it as new. Some of you might know that recently a beloved member of my family was near the end of his life. My beloved coffee machine. Rest in peace. I took it in for repairs. And the service guy told me it needed a new pump, it needed new seals, it needed a new solenoid. Basically, it needed all in new internal parts. And he told me that if he went ahead with this, all the repairs, then it would be as good as new. Maybe for another two or three years. But God is not like that. He is not in the business of refurbishing an old product as good as new. He is in the business of giving us something completely new and infinitely better. Paul says a seed does not come to life by digging it up and brushing it down and restoring it to pristine seediness. It must die first. Then a completely new life takes its place. We presently bear the image of an earthly man, Adam. But in the future, in our resurrected bodies, we will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. See, in one moment, we will be like Adam, and in the next, we will be like the risen Jesus, what we were meant to be like. The third picture that Paul gives us about the future is a little bit more subtle. Uh, He points to those who don't believe in the future because he says that all they have is the present. 1 Corinthians 15, second half of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That pattern is pretty straightforward. Live, then die. And if there is no hope in the future, if this life is all there is, then there is nothing stopping you from just living however you want, whether it's an, that's overindulgence in food and drink, partying all that you can, building a life of comfort and possessions, having a family and comfortable retirement, whatever that lifestyle it is, it hides and masks the ugly truth. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. For those who have no real grounded hope for the future, death is an ugly and cruel finish line. Have you ever wondered why our culture and our world cannot handle the abortion debate? And why it cannot handle the euthanasia debate? It's because of that second half of the line. Tomorrow we die and our world cannot handle this. So it wants control over everything now so that we may live and eat and drink. But for Paul, death is not the end. Death has lost its sting. And so he gloriously sings in verse 54 to 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass, that is the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I was in a museum once, I saw a model uh, of um, a snake that um, some scientists had found, and it was a massive reticulating python which was trying to swallow a deer, but the deer was too big, and the snake died in the process. 
of trying to swallow the deer. Paul is picturing death dying in the same way. Death tried to swallow Jesus, but Jesus swallowed death in return. See, for those united to Jesus, the sting of death is gone. We may still die, but Jesus has taken away its power over us. We are united to Jesus' resurrection over death. And so in the same way that death has no, no power now over Jesus, it has no power over us. And Paul teaches that this new life comes with a new pattern. The old pattern was you live and then you die. Life and then death. But for the Christian, you die to your old self and you live with a new self. Death and then life. Now jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 30, verse 32, uh, 30 to 32, and you, be, you see Paul living out this new pattern. Why are we in danger every hour? I, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Look how Paul describes his life in verse 30. In danger every hour. Verse 31, he dies every day, which I mean to take it to mean he dies to himself and his own desires every day. Verse 32, he fought wild beasts to spread the gospel message. If you compare this life with the world's view of life, then Paul's life looks a lot like death. A life of risk, of denial, of hardship, of toil and frustration. It's a life of being stepped on by other people. But for Paul, that is the life to want. It is the upside-down shaped life that Jesus followed. As Paul writes in Philippians 2 of how Jesus came down, 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 humbling himself to death before being exalted up, up, and up. If Jesus lived, the first fruit lived that way, then Christianity lives that way as well. You might look on the outside and think, wow, that's nuts. Christianity is a loser compared to the world that looks so happy. But on the inside, this world is profoundly unhappy and in despair. And at the heart of Christianity is an unbelievable and unstoppable joy. Jesus has risen and we are united to him. And that changes everything about how we see death and life and the future. Because we have been truly joined to Jesus, we don't just enjoy moments of future glory now. We share in the glory of Jesus himself. That shapes and reshapes who and what we are living for. And because of our union with Christ, we will one day experience all the blessings of that union in eternal joy with God forever. See, if glory is what waits us in the future, if glory is the end goal then do not be afraid of missing out on things now. If union with the resurrected Jesus means that we will never miss out on anything, don't be afraid of missing out in the moment. See, if you struggle with singleness, remember what is being promised. A wedding. Perfect union with Jesus forever. If you struggle with materialism, of wanting the next thing, of being tempted and lured by getting and upgrading and 
finding that next great thing. Remember what is being promised to us in the future. An inheritance. Everything that belongs to Jesus, this whole universe, will belong to us. You will not miss out. If, you, if the struggles of this life, the struggles of this life will be like a bad dream in the shadowy dark night, and soon that bad dream will be over and it will be morning. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis finished the final paragraph of the final book in this way. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived all happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, that's our future. Let us persevere together, preserved by our loving Father in union with Christ to that glorious beginning. Let me pray. Father in heaven, please let us believe these things. Please be at work in our hearts to know these truths and trust them to look to Jesus, the one who is clinging onto us with a grip that is unbreakable. Help us to trust him. Help us to encourage each other to trust him. And help us look forward to that glorious new beginning where we will see you face to face, where we will enjoy you forever, where we will, ne- we will, where we will see and experience and know that we have not missed out on anything in this life. Help us to get to that end together. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.